Hebrews 13, we talked about 17 and 18. And then uh, now we come to 19 and then the benediction in 1320. Okay? I urge you all the more to do this, that is to pray for us that we'd have a good conscience, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory for it ever and ever. Amen. There's an amazing lot of theological concepts in this this benediction. It's a powerful... We use the benediction often here in our services, but it's just such a powerful statement about some of the great themes of redemption, some of the great themes of the Bible. Just to think of a few of them, what does it mean to God of peace? And I'll show you where that came from out of the Old Testament. The brought up from the dead literally means to lead out. And so there's an allusion to the Passover in this, and I'll show you that. Then it says the great shepherd, and this idea of great is a theme in Hebrews, and I have a bunch of references to show you that the book of Hebrews says our great salvation, our great shepherd, our, the great salvation, all the things that are great about what God has done. God is our shepherd. I'm going to preach on that from Genesis 48 where Jacob confesses God as having been his shepherd. So God is our shepherd is a theme that starts in Genesis 48 and goes all the way through the Bible. You can even find it in Revelation. Um, the blood of the eternal covenant, of the blood atonement, has been a major theme in the book of Hebrews, and a very profound one. After our class last week, when we were discussing the blood atonement in, in Sunday school, before the service, I went up and, a, and an outline for a whole CIC article came to me, and I wrote it down in that Bible. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Skip God. Okay, my Bible came back. Anyhow, that's one of the reasons I didn't want to lose it. I have an outline for an article I'm going to write in there. And we were discussing last week just the implications of the blood atonement for some of the things that people fall into. Seeking some sort of a healing of the memories, I think that a lot of times people get into worse bondage because they're not being they're not understanding that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So I'm going to write a whole article just bringing out the implications of the blood atonement for our sanctification and hopefully keep people from going into things that would be very damaging to them. And, and some people get into these things trying to find help and they get worse and worse and worse and they, never, they, can, they just can't crawl back out of it again because that's what this false teaching does. Okay, so then we have the blood of the covenant, the idea that we have an eternal covenant. And then the Lordship of Christ, and then God's work in us to equip us, and the fact that God is working in us, which is something we can cross-reference into Philippians. Okay, so if you're a believer, God is at working in, work in you, and what He's working in you is to bring about what's pleasing in Him. To Him, that is. So God is graciously changing us so that we might live a way that would be pleasing to Him, which we wouldn't do on our own. Okay? And then... Uh, through Christ, this happens, and the glory goes to Him. So that's a lot of theology just in a benediction, wouldn't you say? <laughs> this is the, really the whole gospel in, in the benediction in Hebrews. So let's go back here and start to unpack this. 
Uh, first, the, the prayer, not only for, that they have a good conscience, but that they'd be restored to them. Now, God is called the God of peace. This phrase comes from the Septuagint of Zechariah 9 and verse 11. The Septuagint of Zechariah 9 11. Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament that's quoted often in the New Testament. And there's a lot of quotations and allusions to the Septuagint in Hebrews. Uh, 9-11. Yeah. See, now the phrase of God of peace, see, you don't necessarily see it in the Masoretic Test, but it says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I set, up, set your free, prisoners free from the waterless pit. So here is this blood of the covenant. Now, I'm, I had it in my notes as an allusion in the, the God of peace thing. And I'd have to go look back at Lane to see. It could be that it is in the Septuagint. Now, the idea of peace, Zechariah 9.11 talks about the blood of the covenant. The idea of peace in the Old Testament is obviously, you know, the word shalom. And it had to do with well-being. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the, the, what's revealed by God is that peace or well-being is a result of being in right relationship with God. Okay, When God blesses someone, when God is at work in their life, and when God's promises are being fulfilled, the result is peace. So, And, and the term peace <coughs> means well-being in a fairly broad sense of the word. In the Old Testament, it's kind of a holistic idea of well-being, meaning uh, for Israel, it would mean that their nation is at peace from its enemies. But <clears throat> underlying this always is the idea of being right with God because one of the key things that's taught is this. There is no peace for the wicked. Amen. Okay? So there were times in Israel's history when they seemed to have peace and the false prophets were saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. For, and you had situations like what described in the book of Amos in the northern kingdom where they were prosperous, where they did have this seemingly holistic well-being, but they really didn't because they weren't right with God, because they were committing idolatry, because they'd set, set up these two false places of worship in Dan and in Bethel, and they had Baal in their house of worship right along with God. And they thought, well, Assyria is not attacking us. We've got great crops. We've got all of this wealth, so we must have peace. But the prophets say there's no peace for the wicked and that this is a false peace and that you're gaining false comfort from the false prophets. And you need to know that when you're idolaters and covenant breakers, you really don't have peace even when it seems like it. Does does that make sense? And Amos uh, prophesied that their, their false peace would be soon destroyed. Yes, Keith. Oh, hold on. Robert's the mic man, so anybody that wants to say something, get his attention. Is, is it on? Both of them should be going the same direction, and there should be a red light. That's good. No, I was just saying that when we feel we have peace with God, or say God can send material blessings as a judgment on us, 
because we won't repent. It's a God's grace when he brings tribulations and trials to get our attention to bring us back to him. And the fact that the northern kingdom was continuing on in prosperity and equating prosperity with their right relationship with God mm-hmm. is what ended up deluding them and they ended up, the whole kingdom was destroyed. So God sends prosperity as a judgment on people who won't listen to the prophets that are trying to bring them yeah, back. He can use it as a delusion uh, to judge people who don't listen. Now, what that means then is you have to know what the terms of the covenant are in order to know you're right with God. You can't just look by the externals. Now, when I say peace in a holistic sense in their conception in the Old Testament, it means this, that uh, ultimately their, their uh, hope is that Israel would dwell in the land and that God would be their shepherd and that they'd have the peace of Jerusalem that they've been praying for. But what is ultimately true is that's really not going to happen until the Prince of Peace is reigning in Jerusalem. Okay? And so... The, the peace is going to always be elusive uh, until that is true, until it, the Prince of Peace comes and reigns. Now, for us, the way we can know the God of peace is by coming in the right relationship to Him through the Prince, Prince of Peace. Amen. And we can't just look at the external circumstances and know whether we have the kind of peace that God wants us to have. We have to look at our covenant relationship. And if they're in right covenant relationship with God... They have the shalom that God promised, even if there's a lot of negative circumstances. And if they're not in right covenant relationship with God, even though they may have great circumstances, there's no peace. Because <laughs> there's no peace for the wicked. So that, does that make sense? And I, I addressed this in uh, the, I think in the conclusion of my book, I talk about the peace plan. And I address this very issue. And... Um, the bottom line about this is that you have to have this right relationship. So here it talks about the blood of the eternal covenant in the context of knowing the God of peace. And so if you haven't experienced the blood atonement by faith in Christ, you don't have shalom. right? And you don't know the God of peace. So that's the first thing that we need to know here, the God of peace. And then it says He brought up from the dead. Now that phrase is not, an, not a usual way for describing the resurrection. And it literally means to lead out. And this is an allusion to God's redemptive act where He leads out the people from slavery and bondage and brings them to Himself. Okay, God said in Exodus that He had brought them out and He had brought them, in fact it says on eagle's wings, to Myself. So the first uh, thing that happened as they came out of Egypt and brought to Sinai is they met God there in a theophany on the mountain. So the, ulti- the first thing to know about this covenant is this relationship with God. Now, the promise was that they'd go to Canaan. But before that, they had to meet God and, and God gave them the law through Moses so that they have the terms of the covenant before he even did anything that was going to bring them into the promised land. And then they had their rebellion, so they had a 40-year delay in this whole process. So the God of peace who brought up... Um, uh, Robert, could you turn to Genesis 50 and verse 24? The word lead out or brought up, lead out means to bring, 
to lead or to carry. Genesis 50 and verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to yeah, Jacob. So, yeah, so he says, I'll bring you up, right? Bring you out. Bring you up from this land. Yeah, so it was that same idea. The Septuagint is that same word. So he's going to bring them. Uh, God bringing his people out of slavery and to himself. Now, I wrote an, an article about this about, based on Romans 8 called carried by the comforter. And the word led by the Spirit, it says those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, but the word led there means to carry. Okay? So what it means is that the people of God are being carried along, just like they were under the Old Covenant, and God is, is not just letting us wander around aimlessly according to our own devices, but He who has entered into this covenant relationship uh, to us and taken us as a people is bringing us or carrying us along as the analogy goes with the, as he did in the Old Covenant to bring the people to himself and to bring them to the Promised Land. Now, here is talking about bringing Christ up from the dead and then applying it to us. And so it's like this. Just as Christ died and went into the grave, and God brought him out of death through the resurrection, he, the great shepherd, he, the one who went before us, the, the forerunner of our faith, as it says earlier in Hebrews, was brought out from the dead through the resurrection, so also God will take us who were dead in our sins and were in slavery and in bondage and aliens from the promises he will bring us out of that condition and bring us to new life in Christ. Amen. So that's the brought up or brought out or carried out or whatever uh, analogy. It's just continuing the same parallel throughout the book of Hebrews when you have Moses built a house and Jesus built a house. So Jesus is the new Moses parallel right up to the uh, benediction. That's right. All the way through, you're very right, uh, Keith, all the way through Hebrews there's this these comparisons of Jesus. See, because remember the Hebrews people, Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back. They thought they were being told, well, it was better. We had a, we had, we had a high priest and look how great he was. And we had the temple. Look how great that was. And we have Moses and we have angels and all the wonderful things. And so a theme of Hebrews is that all those things they thought they had, Jesus is greater than all of them. Amen. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus has a better house than Moses did. Jesus is a better high priest uh, than the Levitical priesthood. And there are better promises given to us under the New Covenant. And we have a better atonement under the New Covenant because the blood of bulls and goats could... Blood of bulls and goats... Is that what it says? Hebrews 9? I got about four hours of sleep last night, so that's my excuse. <laughs> we didn't get in from Chicago until very, very late. Uh, driving last night, so um, I may stumble over a few words. You know, when we go golfing, we usually do that. See, when we get on the first tee, you give all the excuses before you start. <laughs> I haven't practiced. I got a sore back. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, then then you go out, and when you do badly, everybody expects it, right? <laughs> so my excuse is a lack of sleep here. But nevertheless, uh, there's this wonderful uh, teaching in about greater, and I pulled out a bunch of verses I'm going to read to you on what greater. And what it means in 
in Hebrews. And so this blood atonement in the Old Testament was applied to the flesh externally, according to the book of Hebrews. But the blood atonement under the new covenant is greater because it is applied to the conscience to cleanse our conscience from dead works from the inside out. And it's greater because those ones had to be offered over and over and over continually. And this atonement was done once for all. And it perfects forever those who draw near to God. So he's able to perfect forever those who draw near to God. Yes. And the exodus is greater here because once there they're just leaving Egypt. Here we're leaving, leaving death. That's a good point. So our Christian life is in a sense an exodus. It's an exodus. I'm, I'm just going to look for some quotes here. i get myself on the right page. Let me quote some wonderful stuff about this from uh, William Lane, a great uh, New Testament scholar. There's a, he says that Hebrews 13.20 also has an allusion to Isaiah 63.11-14 through 14 in the Septuagint. Um, and he shows the Greek in here and shows how he uses the same word. It says in Hebrews 13.20 from the Greek... He led out from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. And then, he, and then a quote uh, from the Septuagint of Isaiah 63, 11 through 14, who brought up out of the land the shepherd of the sheep. It's almost the same phrase. Who brought up out of the land the shepherd of the sheep. He who led forth Moses, he led them. Thus you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So he believes there's an allusion to Isaiah 63, 11 through 14 in Hebrews 13, 20. So if you want to take note of that and maybe look up those uh, passage in Isaiah 63. And then he says this, the reference in Isaiah 63, 11 to 14, Septuagint, is to God's appointment of Moses as the leader of Israel in the context of the deliverance from Egypt. Moses, the shepherd of Midian, Exodus 3, 1, is the model for the great shepherd, Jesus. According to Isaiah 63, 11 and 14, he was led forth, not as an isolated individual, but as the shepherd of the flock. The entire people are specified as the object of God's leading. This is true of Jesus as well, who was led forth from the realm of the dead. Through him, God has begun to lead his flock in order to make a glorious name for himself. That action will be complete when the flock of God is brought to the experience of celebrative rest. Remember I said earlier, they were made it there for a rest for the people of God. And an appointment to the office of shepherd is the goal of leading forth Jesus from the dead. So there's an analogy, of the, again, the greater Moses. You know, as, I have, as we're coming to the end of Hebrews, I, I just, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at this. Uh, we've been saying this for, I don't know, four or five years. And I'm trying to keep going back to some of the earlier stuff, because some of you weren't here when we started. And the... It has to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think anybody could be clever enough to figure all of this out. Okay? I mean, to, to intertwine these glorious themes and to allude to the Old Testament and to keep it consistent with the Old and then bringing it forth from the Old to the New in a great way and then tying it all together internally within the, the book of Hebrews like this uh, allusion to Moses in, in the benediction that just carries forward the theme that we learned earlier that this is the greater than Moses Jesus. Now he says this again, William Lane. The leading out is the fundamental redemptive action of God under both Old and New Covenant. Upon it are based the exclusive claims of God to his people's allegiance. On the one hand, and on the other, the ground for trusting God's power and readiness to stand by his covenant people. 
the intervention of God in leading his people up from Egypt in the Torah. And then he quotes, he just gives a whole bunch of cross-references, more than we can look up. And in the prophets, a whole bunch more references. And from the realm of the dead in the Psalms, a bunch more references, prefigured his decisive action in raising Jesus from the dead. Verse after verse after verse prefigures the resurrection of Christ. And so when Paul says a number of times that Christ was raised according to the Scriptures, he's referring to all of these references that are analogous to the resurrection. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote down here, wow, that, that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> that's my best thing when I'm reading a book. I say, wow, then that's good. <laughs> And, and what causes me to say, wow, is just the, the glory is just in being able to read the Scripture. You know what? Bad theology is grounded in bad reading. I, I was reading some bad theology the other day from some people that are very well respected, even by some of our friends. And it's just bad theology. This person was saying that baptism ceased and baptism is not for Christians. No, baptism in water is not for the church. And then they were, and they, but it was based on just bad reading of scriptures. One of the proof texts was 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, I thank God I baptized none of you. But if you look at the context, but then, it, then in the next verse he said, But I baptized this one, that one, and that one. So if baptism ceased, why do you baptize anybody? And his point for saying that was because they were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And Paul said, Had I baptized you, you'd probably say, I'm of Paul. He wasn't saying baptism ceased. So, I was looking at this theology. By the way, you know who this comes from? Les Feldick. Yes, Les Feldick. Yeah. Because somebody called me and says, well, baptism ceased, so why are you baptizing people? And I said, well, what kind of doctrine that? And they said, well, I read it from Les Feldick. So I went and looked it up on the Internet. Sure enough, that's what he teaches. Well, I... Less is a one. He's very well respected. I'm not saying this to do, to get to disrespect Mr. Feldick. He's. I think they probably agree. You wouldn't put it on there. Well, okay. My point is this: you, if you like well, Les Feldick, don't get mad at me. That's okay. I'm not saying you can't listen to him, but it's it's just a bad reading. Read it. Read the text. That's a bad reading. I know when I when Ryan and I had Doctor uh, Versaput who taught us how a lot about just how to read. If somebody came up and had a really bad interpretation, he goes, that's a very bad reading. You read that again. Read the context. Read the paragraph. <laughs> Where did this come from? Where did you get this? And it's usually some idea that we got that we put into the text rather than allowing the text to tell us what the inspired author, the Holy Spirit inspired author, is saying to us. God speaking to his church through scripture. So the better you can read it, and somebody like this Lane is just good at reading because he can pull out the context and stuff, but this, the truth is here for all of us. So seeing the analogy, I would believe, in fact, I, I felt like one of the best compliments I ever got from Dr. Versaput was we were talking about the incident where Peter got in the boat with Jesus and they had the big catch of fish. And we were sort of corporately in our class trying to interpret the passage. What was the point? And Peter got in the boat and had a big catch of fish. So what's the point? There's some reason Luke told us that. And Versaput always says, you find out what the point is. And then if you do a good job, then, that, then you get a good grade. <laughs> but you better get it right. So I was looking at that, and it just came to me. I said, I think, I think this is an allusion to Isaiah 6. He says, really? Tell me more. 
I said, well, in Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he said, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. And, I live, and, he, and, he, and he, he felt like he was in the presence of God and he was a sinner. And when Peter was in the boat and he saw the catch, he got caught a glimpse of the deity of Christ. And like Isaiah says, depart from me, I'm an unclean man, I'm a sinner. And Dr. Versafoot evidently hadn't seen that before. And he goes, that's a good reading. <laughs> so it, it wasn't, I didn't get some revelation that I just had read. And thinking about the fact of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when you're reading, think about where you've seen this earlier in the Bible and these things that are coming out and the Bible's just rich and, the, and it's always pointing us to God. So here in Peter going into that boat was an allusion to the deity of Christ. That's why he felt like he was a sinner in his presence, just like Isaiah did. So here's an allusion to Moses who brought up the great shepherd. So Moses was the shepherd, according to Isaiah, was the shepherd of Israel. And God brought Moses and Israel out. So Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. And God brought him out only from a greater problem. Moses and the people came from the problem of being slaves in Egypt. Jesus overcame the problem of death. Slavery to death. Oh, thinking about that, remember earlier in Hebrews, it doesn't say Hebrews 2? That, that we were through fear of death and slavery all of our lives? So that just reinforces that idea. So all the people were in slavery through Satan and the fear of death. And Jesus brought us out of slavery because he overcame death and therefore overcame the fear of death and gave us eternal life. So that's how, that's our reading. And he brought up from the dead the great shepherd. The great shepherd. Uh, one more quote here. The leading forth of Jesus is for the new and eternal covenant, the fundamental action of God that has replaced the foundational acts of salvation under the old covenant. So it's a better salvation. Um, <clears throat> the shepherd of the sheep, that's from Isaiah 63.11. These words are to stress the incomparable superiority of Jesus the mediator of the new covenant to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. The addition is considered the writer's Christological use of the adjective great, megas in the Greek. Great, mega, or mega. So I looked up great in the book of Hebrews, and I'm just going to read these if you want to jot them down. I just printed them out so I don't have to flip through to save time. But here are some of the verses in Hebrews that use the adjective great. The first one, First one is Hebrews 4.14. Since we have such a great mega, megan, or megas, high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then we do obviously discussed this when we were in Hebrews 4. But our confession is the confession of Christ. And the allusion to Moses here, because Jesus passed through the heavens, the people passed through the sea, so Jesus did a better passing through, right? And Jesus is the Son of God. Something else unique about him. But it says he's a great high priest. Then in Hebrews 6.13, Hebrews 6.13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. <laughs> There's no one greater than God. And so he swore by himself. That's the same word. Hebrews 6.16, for men swear by one greater than themselves, 
And with them an oath is given as confirmation. That's sort of a carrying on of the argument of Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews 9.11. Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, future, he entered through what? The greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, not to say, that is to say, not of this creation. So, Jesus entering into the heavenly tabernacle, where he sits at the right hand of God, is a greater tabernacle Amen. than the one on earth, Amen. which is just a copy of the heavenly, according to the Bible. Is, that make, is this making sense? Okay, so we have a greater high priest, greater promises, um, greater and more perfect tabernacle, now, Hebrews 10.21, again, we have a great high priest over the house of God, the same word in the Greek. Hebrews 10.35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, what confidence is he talking about? Self-confidence? No. <laughs> Good. <laughs> he got the right answer. No, he's not talking about self-confidence. This isn't an Anthony Robbins uh, seminar here. <laughs> You know, some handsome guy, I've made millions, and I'm, you know, you got to assert yourself. No, that's not the confidence. The confidence is in our great high priest through which we have eternal hope, through whom we have eternal hope. And so, don't throw away the confidence that you have in God, in Christ, through the atonement that you have by faith. Don't throw that away. And if you're plundered of your goods, that's talked about in Hebrews 10. If your friends desert you, if you lost your family, if you've lost your job, if you lost um, the friendship with this world, which you're always going to lose, because friendship with the world is hostility to God, don't worry, don't throw away your confidence, because you have a greater reward. So, don't, so that's a great reward to have confidence in God. Hebrews 11.26, another one. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. And I think that, I think we have to take this very literally. Because we never know when we're going to have to do something like that. And Keith and Stefan and I drove to Chicago and back Friday and Saturday. And we talked and talked 16 hours of talking theology and fishing. <laughs> and, and sports, <laughs> yeah, right. But remember that one conversation we had, Keith, where we were talking about sometimes it's so literally true that really, if you have forgiveness of sins, what more can you ask for? Even if everything else goes away, yeah. And it's just so literally true, and we don't always get in a place in our life where that happens, where everything's taken away from us. But some people do. Some people literally get to the place where everything goes away. But if we take this literally, and, and I use Moses sort of as an example of a person of faith, he had the treasures of Egypt. He could be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could be the most powerful man in the whole world with all the pleasures Egypt had. And he went instead out into the wilderness with a bunch of people that didn't like him, who were grumblers. But he had the treasure of the promises of God. Yeah, but before and that, so he maybe went out, out. Yeah, so maybe all we have is the forgiveness of sins. Yes. And yeah, before that, he went out. He just left it and was a shepherd with nothing, literally. And he's sitting on the backside of the desert. And I think that when we preach about the treasures of what we have in salvation, 
what we have is in, in 200 years, I promise you, the only thing that's important in this whole room, the only thing that's important is not what you have in your pocket and not what you have in your bank account. In 200 years, the only thing that is really important is what we're talking about now in terms of faith. And if we thought that way, the, the kind of life that we would live would reflect it differently. And if you're talking to somebody and he says, I have this problem, I have that problem, all my problems will be resolved in 200 years. I know that. <laughs> Unless but, you're not a Christian, then they're going to be then worse. Then you'll have bigger problems. And that was, that was kind of the context of the conversation we were seeing. This, this, you know, the, the, the wealth of, of Chicago. Yeah, we, that's a, that was it. We were in downtown Chicago where all the wealth is. And it's, it's billions and billions of dollars in standing on a street corner. Yep. And it's fine. It's not a sin. Wealth is not a sin. But if you're looking to what's good the next year or the next 10 years or the next 30 years and you lose sight of what's good the next 200 years, you've made a really, really, really bad mistake. Yes. I remember now where we were standing. We were over, standing over the Chicago River that goes out into Lake Michigan. And here's this place where these... Huge condos with all these cars in circles in the condo underneath. And then above that is condo, 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 way up into the sky. And then below the condo, they have this fancy restaurant where you can eat. And below the restaurant is the yachts. So you got your condo, your car, your restaurant, and your yacht. All right there. You just go up and down from the yacht. And then you get in the yacht and you go out to Lake Michigan and you come back and go to the condo, the restaurant. And right by Michigan Avenue. And that's where we were talking 200 years from now, unless those people know the Lord, this stuff is worthless. It's okay. not that it's bad now. It's not that it's sin now. But if that's what you have as priority such that you don't look 200 years out, yeah. you're in If you trouble. lose your soul to try to get that, most of us aren't going to get that anyhow, so why worry about it, right? So anyhow, uh, that's a, this Moses is such a great example because of what, how literal this change was from the treasures of Egypt to destitution in the wilderness. It was just literally what happened to him. And here, he is one of the greatest people in the history of redemption, save Jesus Christ himself. Because he was the shepherd. Yes, uh, Kathy. Another thing is that a lot of the um, Christians forget, and this is something that's, that struck me, and I put it up on my calendar, and that is we need to learn how to endure like with the being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at some point, every one of us is going to face losing everything in this world. It may be sudden. We had our last, uh, in the church golf league, I, I got a, by the way, Jack, I get, they took that guy off of life support. Yeah, the guy that he told us about. That, that uh, Lee told us about that had the stroke. Yeah, they took him off of life support. I don't. The last email I got from Lee, they don't. He's still breathing a little on his own, but they don't expect he'll survive. Well, the reason I bring this up is we were Jack and I were at the last kind of thing for the church league, and as Lee in tears said, one of the, the one of the best players on their team that was a close friend and a wonderful neighbor, uh, 52 years old, suddenly had a stroke, and that was it. And they couldn't do anything for him. So suddenly, it may, it may be suddenly we don't have anything. Amen. And it may be we live to be old and then we get to be like Jacob. I'm going to preach on Jacob on his deathbed blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. That's my sermon today. That might happen. 
But whether it happens like it did for Jacob where you're very old and your eyes are dim and they bring the kids to you to say goodbye, or whether it happens suddenly like this guy is 52 and now he's gone, we're all going to lose everything we have in this world. Okay? Absolutely. We're going to lose everything that we have. And so the only question that's going to be important at that moment is do we have the eternal riches of God? Or do we not? Now, if we have salvation now because we've come to God by faith, it could be that we lose a bunch of what we have now before we die. Okay? Maybe some people can really say amen to that because you've gone through that. I mean, it could be you lose most of what you have now and you still have to keep living. So you didn't lose it on your deathbed, you lost it early. These truths have to be our undergirding and our comfort when that happens. It has to still be true that the rich, the glories of Christ are greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And it has to be true that we're looking for the reward and not throwing away our confidence because we have this great high, ship, uh, high priest as the shepherd of the sheep. Now, the reason we can know this isn't some subjective feeling. You can get a person who is totally not a Christian to have eternal hope falsely. Amen. That's true. You, there are people that are willing to give up everything they have in the world for a false hope. The suicide bombers. Okay? They, they're willing to give up everything they have based on a false hope. So how do we know our hope is real and theirs is false? Yeah, Jesus Christ was literally bodily resurrected physically in history before witnesses. Muhammad did no such thing. And so our hope is based not because we have a greater subjective desire to have hope, or we have a greater, um, you know, I was reading the theology of the emergent church when we were on vacation in August, and their whole thing is you can't know what the truth is, but you can have a community. So if you get a community and we all together have some hope, we can't know if it's true or false, but we know that it works in our community. So then then it goes from, well, instead of being a suicide bomber that has false hope, we have a suicide army or a suicide community. Because that hope, because in that theology of the emergent church, there's no way to know whether the Muslim hope is any more valid or invalid than the Christian one. Because they reject truth, absolute truth, and evidence in history. Okay? And, and I'm not making that up. I was just reading about it. You can't know. So you can't know Jesus was raised from the dead based on um, evidence and witnesses. So you can, But you can subjectively be part of a group that decides that's what they believe. And if it comforts you, then that's the best you can have. Now, it could be all false, but we can't know these things. That is so bad. It's like giving away the whole Christian hope because of despair of knowing the truth. Is that okay? Yeah, so now let's just get back here. I'm, I don't think I can get through this one verse today, but I think we can get a part further. God of peace. Well, I knew I was in trouble when I had six pages on this from just my commentary on one verse. I knew it was. <laughs> It's, it, we're, uh, uh, Ryan, we're talking about Hebrews 13.20, the benediction, and all the theology in there, and the bringing out from the dead is an allusion to the Exodus. 
because it's an unusual terminology. So just as Moses brought the people out from slavery, Jesus brought his people out. And that the evidence of this is the resurrection. So he was raised from the dead. The great shepherd. We talked about the great. I showed you all those verses about great in Hebrews. Now the idea of God as shepherd, I'm going to preach on that, is found in Genesis 48, very early on, and where Jacob confesses that God has been his shepherd. And Jacob says that because he looks back at his history and he sees, you can read the story of Jacob, starts at Genesis 25 and it doesn't end until Genesis 49. Right. So that's a long story, the story of Jacob. And the story is God shepherding Jacob. Now, there was a lot of foibles. I mean, he, he tries to deceive his father. He gets in trouble with Esau. He tries to deceive Laban. He gets in trouble with Laban. He gets in trouble with God. He gets in trouble with everybody. And there's all these uh, misadventures and adventures in this whole story. But he ends up back in Canaan after all these years, all right, with a family. And he makes peace with Esau. And then he loses Jacob, so he thinks. Or, I mean, he loses Joseph, so he thinks. And he ends up uh, now in Genesis 48. I'm sort of giving a preview of the sermon. Reunited with his family. And after all of this, he could say, God has been my shepherd. All my life. Now, why could he say that? Well, because before he was born, God had already made a covenant promise to his mother. And so God had shepherded uh, Jacob and brought him to himself. But, you know, if we look back at our lives, it doesn't look so good sometimes. All right? We may have gone through more misadventures than Jacob did. But if we're a Christian, we can say that God is our shepherd. Yeah. And I think the concept is we see the straying of Jacob as something that was outside of God's will. And Jacob looked at it and said, God was leading me in my straying. And he brought his purposes about through my straying, even though I was straying. Yeah, yeah. He, and he saw God bring him to the, to the end. Now, I have a cross-reference, but I don't think we need to look it up. Oh, yeah, don't turn the green one off, just the other one. Uh, <laughs> All right, one of my cross-references is Psalm 23.1. Does anybody know what that says? The Lord is my shepherd. So when David said that, he was making the same confession that uh, Jacob did. So I'm going to preach on that. Now, back row. Who claimed to be, well, what did Jesus say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. Yes. Um, well, a couple things. In, in the Psalm 23 passage, recall in Psalm 23 when, when David proclaims, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that really goes back to the root of the whole issue is the rod is for discipline and the staff pulls us back in. And those aren't sometimes pleasant things to undergo, is to get a whack on the behind from the rod. <laughs> but they comfort us. They comfort us. Why? Because if we stray too far, we're going to fall off a cliff. Yeah. So it's the comfort of the rod and the staff that is the secure, securing our souls every moment. We know that we have a shepherd that that is watching over us. And I was going to mention the thing we were talking about this on the way back from golf. Uh, and the whole good shepherd motif is there's another one that's very clear in Ezekiel chapter um, 34, 34:13. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. 
And so it, the promise in this text was that there were, the shepherds who were supposed to be walking over Israel weren't doing it. Yeah. So he says, I myself am going to come. Yeah. And when you look at the reference that Bob just wrote, or uh, just read about in um, John chapter 10, if you recall, the shepherds of Israel that, at that time had just kicked out a guy that had been healed because of because Jesus healed him. And Jesus went and sought him out, and uh, the guy confessed faith. And right after that, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Yeah. Amen. So it, it's, there's, there's so many beautiful, histor- I mean, yeah. salvation historical references here with the reference to my shepherd. That's a good reading. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were talking about that earlier, how Versaput would say the best compliment you can get for Dr. Versaput, that was a good reading. That is a good reading. Because the, the implication is that the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel were bad shepherds. Because they kick a guy out of the synagogue for being healed by Jesus. All right? And then Jesus, right after that, John 9, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, the others are thieves and robbers. Amen. They're hirelings. They go over the wall. They don't come through the door of the sheep. For, for under, yeah, Ezekiel 34, bad shepherds, good shepherd. John 10, John 9, bad shepherds, good shepherd. Now, in the church today, we've got some bad shepherds. <laughs> They're not looking out for the well-being of the flock. And, but we have the promise of God that he's the good shepherd and he's going to take care of us. Yes. The one thing we fear the most is being corrected by God. Well, if we, if we think true, truthfully about it, we would fear not being corrected by God. And that's in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, whom he Lord, the Lord loves, he disciplines. No. Yes, Dan. Dan doesn't get the mic. Contrast is. <laughs> we, we, that would be a bad thing to give Dan a mic. <laughs> contrast is that God said, if you love me, you will obey me. And that's what Moses did when he came down from the mountain. But remember, the chief god of Baal isn't dead. He was the chief god of the pagans. And the tribe in the north, Dan, they just loved him because he offered this. God is not a liar. There is pleasure in sin for a day. Say it again. There's pleasure in sin for a day. When Moses come down there pleasuring himself with a calf, drunkenness, and sexual immorality, God, the chief God Baal offered temple prostitutes. He offered his pleasure. And they loved it. They wanted pleasure. God says, if you love me, obey me. It wasn't always pleasant to love God. You give him these stinking sacrifices. He said, I don't want the blood of both goats and bulls. I want a broken, contrite heart. It wasn't easy to obey the Lord. But even in the old covenant, he gave you the strength to do it. To love, to serve, to do what he wanted you to do. But they wanted pleasure. It isn't dead today. The God of Baal, Satan, is alive today. And the preachers and these false prophets are offering all the pleasure you want. There's truth in it. But in the end, it's going to be eternal yeah. Okay. Amen. <laughs> now you know why we didn't give him the mic. <laughs> God gave you an internal mic, didn't he? Did. Praise the gospel. <laughs> um, I was going to quote some more, a little more of William Lane here, uh, talking about because of the blood, who led out because of the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus, that's our next phrase, the shepherd of the sheep. Through, or because of, is how he reads it, the blood of the eternal covenant. And so he says here, by virtue of the blood, is another way to translate it. It is to be referred to, uh, let's see, Jesus was led out from among the dead by virtue of his unique and unrepeatable pouring out of his own blood. The writer, the writer correctly interpreted the phrase, the waterless pit, 
and Zechariah 9.11 as the realm of the dead. Okay? So there's an allusion, as I said earlier, to Zechariah 9.11 from the Septuagint. So Jesus was brought out from the, through the blood of the covenant, the realm of the dead, and he leads forth a whole people out of the realm of the dead. So instead of coming out of Egypt, literally, we're coming out of the realm of the spiritually dead into the realm of life and salvation. And it says here, um, through the blood of the eternal covenant. So the, the covenant is ratified. The, when it talks about the blood of the covenant, it talks about the ratification of a covenant that was initiated by God. And, and it was God who said, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Right? And the blood of the covenant is Jesus' own blood, and it was shed once for all. Okay? Once for all. That's a very important phrase, and you find it in the book of Hebrews. Now, we've often referred back to Exodus 24.8, but let's look it up again. Uh, do you want to look that one up, Robert? Did I give you one earlier? What was it? Oh, and you read it, didn't you? Okay, Dan, it's your turn then. Sorry. Okay, Exodus 24.8. It talks about the blood of the covenant. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Okay. So the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made. Now the covenants of God are initiated by God. So you have people that get these really goofy ideas that we can make a covenant with God that we initiate. All right, and that if we keep the covenant that we made, then God's obligated to do something for us. It's just, it's just, I know, people think, I'm not kidding you, that the Word of Faith people teach, teach it that way. You can write your own ticket with God, and then He's obligated to keep it. What, what they miss is that God makes covenants with man. Man doesn't just initiate one and then obligate God to the covenant man made. There is a guy. I saw at Iowa State when I before I was a Christian, and he was just he was he was drinking and swearing and mad, and and, and so somebody asked him, "What are you What are you so mad about?" So I'm mad at God. He's, and here he's blaspheming God, and and so then the guy said, "Well, why are you mad at God?" And he said, "Because we thought my girlfriend was pregnant, so I told God that if she's not pregnant, I'd quit drinking." Made a deal. Yeah, I made a covenant with God. If, I, if, I, if it turns out my girlfriend's not pregnant, I'm going to quit drinking. Well, it turns out she was pregnant. So he was drinking and blaspheming. God didn't keep his deal. I wasn't a Christian, so I didn't have anything to say to him. But I, I isn't that a goofy? You know, you know I, God has to do my bidding, or I'm going to be mad. And, and and then the other thinking is, if I'm not drinking, just think how lucky God is. <laughs> It's just, God is so happy. <laughs> See, it is totally backwards. All right. So when it comes to the covenants, God makes them, not man, and the terms are determined by God, not man. But let me give you a more. Uh, let me bring something that'll probably get me in trouble with some people, but I'm going to make this hit home with us Americans. That's exactly what the Puritans did. 
they tried to obligate God to a covenant that they made that God never agreed to. Now, just think about it before you get mad. I don't want to be like Greg Boyd and have everybody leave. But I, you know. but I, uh, I was reading, I was reading of the history of America. Yeah, they, they said, we are making a covenant with God. But who was God's spokesman who agreed to it? Yeah, and 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 and, there, and if you read the, the, the history and uh, depending on, on what documents you're able to access, their idea was America was going to be the new Israel, and their leaders are going to be like Moses, and they're going to have a promised land, and they're going to have a theocracy, and America is going to be like a, this new Israel, and they and they had a covenant like Israel did. But the difference between so some of you listening out there can just just I want you to think about this anyhow. If you want to disagree, I'm willing to listen to it. But the difference, what's the difference between the covenant that Moses had with God and Israel and the covenant the Puritans had to make America the new Israel? God God made the covenant, and it was all his idea, the one with Moses. And this other one, God didn't even agree to it. They just assumed that if we make a covenant, God's going to like that. He's going to be happy with us. Uh, Okay. I think I'm telling you that because I think it's an American myth that we live with that we're Israel. And you hear our preachers preach like America is Israel. Dave Wilkerson over and over says America is Israel. You just read his sermons. America is Israel. Uh, it says, I can prove this. And he goes to Jeremiah, thus saith the Lord, if your land does this and this and this, then this is what's going to happen. And he says, that's America. No, that's Israel. How, that, what kind of biblical exegesis is that, thinking America is Israel? Ryan. Um, Ryan. By the way, that's all. I, I did a lot of studying that this last spring. I took a class. It's all rooted in replacement theology. Yeah, it's, that's replacement theology, by the way. So those of us here should know better. <laughs> America's not Israel. Israel's Israel. What are we? Grafted in. Goyim. <laughs> The goy, the, but the, the, the I nations. Was, yeah. I was thinking about this whole shepherding thing, and you got my gears turning when you kind of made the application to today. Yeah. That, okay, we look back at in Ezekiel's time, there's good shepherds and bad shepherds. And in Jesus' time, you had the bad shepherds who were kicking people out of the synagogue for aligning themselves with Jesus. And now, today, we have bad shepherds who, I, correct me if I get the story wrong, but there was, you told me about a story where there was an elderly couple who had been in a church for so long. Yes. And what happened was, is the church went purpose-driven. Is that yes, right? Yes, yes. And what happened was, is the, the man was sick. Yeah, right? he was, it, yeah, the story was, I got this le- a letter from a lady. Her husband's 83 years old. He has congestive heart failure and, and pro- or some kind of problem with his heart. And the doctor examined him and said, I can't, if I do surgery on your heart, you die in surgery. So you'll just have to go home and die whenever your heart gives out. Because that's that's the alternative, and you're better off going home. Anyways, so, he, so he's home waiting to die. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, anyways, he's home waiting to die, and they and they've been asking the pastor to preach the Bible. They want to hear about Jesus from the Word, and the church went purpose driven. So the pastor comes to his house and says, "We think you should find another place to go." Yeah. Right. That he, is the definition of a, a bad, bad shepherd, that's and it's a bad totally shepherd. in line. The implications of, of yeah. John chapter nine and ten are yeah. are resounding there. Absolutely. And this lady. This lady, in her letter to me, I'm quoting her, she said, Can you imagine that? My husband has one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. And the pastor comes out to tell us to go find a different church. He, she, he might as well just have said, 
I don't feel like doing a funeral. Isn't that a bad shepherd? It's more important to take care of the flock than to take care of our personal corporate vision for our being a mega church or whatever. It's too bad. Okay, now we got about halfway through, so I'm going to call this one Hebrews 13:20a. And then next week we'll talk about more about the blood of the eternal covenant and Christ as Lord. Some more cross references, and then we'll look at the, uh, how God is at work in our life to do what's pleasing in His sight. What a lot of wonderful promises just in a benediction. Okay, thank you for the invigorating discussion, and we'll see you upstairs in about a half hour.